Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their story so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors, and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Dr. Patrick T. Mather, class of 1989, is the fourth dean of the Schreier Honors College at Penn State. D. Mather returned to Dearold State after a career that was launched with the U.S. Air Force Research Lab and several stops with increasing responsibility in academia, including the University of Connecticut, Case Western Reserve University, Syracuse University, and most recently Bucknell University, where he served as the dean of engineering. He earned his B.S. with honors and M.S. degrees from Penn State in engineering science and engineering mechanics, respectively, following which he went on to receive his Ph.D. in materials at UC Santa Barbara in 1994. Dean Pat joined Following the Gong to share his career story and life and career advice for scholars from his unique perspective as both an alum and as dean, including lessons in material science, the thesis, liquid crystals, academia, and leadership. He also shares his musical talents in this episode, recorded live in Atherton Hall's famed Grandfather Clock Lounge. You can read Dean Pat's full bio and a more detailed breakdown in the show notes on your podcast app. With that, let's dive right into our conversation with Dean Patrick Mather, following the gong. musical stylings you are hearing is none other than Schreier Honors College Dean Patrick T. Mather. Dean Mather, thank you for joining me here on Fallen the Gone. It's great to sit here with you in person in the Grandfather Clock Lounge here in Atherton Hall, and we're going to chat about your story as both an alum and as a dean of the college. But to tell that story in proper, I want to go back to high school, Pat. So how did you begin your Penn State journey? What brought you here circa 1985? Sure. Uh, uh, It's great to be here, particularly in Grandfather Clock Lounge, which uh, feels very much like home to me and and to you as well, I'm sure. Um, So you mentioned high school. I was not really an academic in high school. I was um, uh, quite social. I liked to run, although I wasn't really an athlete. I was mostly a musician, and my... uh, Part of my identity was in a band called the Cassabas, and I was the lead guitarist. And uh, I had some aspirations to make a go of it as a music career, maybe 10th, 11th grade. But my father was sort of a coach (laughs) and a mentor. Uh, He didn't go to college, but he uh, was um, uh, wise uh, enough to suggest, hey, you know that physics class you took that you sort of enjoyed? Maybe there's a direction uh, you can take related to that. Uh, so I pondered physics. I, I didn't do that great in math, to be perfectly honest. But um, 
in my limited explorations, I settled on engineering, and I knew Penn State was a great engineering school. We were huge Nittany Lions fans, uh, where I grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania. So applied to a couple places, and I'll remember to this day when I, um, I was working at a supermarket. I was a checker at Fury's supermarket. My mom brought the letter from Penn State down. Uh, I had to you know, ask my customer to pause for a moment, and I opened the letter, and it was an acceptance. There was hugs, <laughs> tears, uh, and, um, and that's all she wrote. So I was, you know, immediately upon getting accepted to Penn State, I decided to, to go there and major in uh, originally electrical engineering, uh, which wasn't exactly for me. Um, but I did, I did well in my first year, well enough to get like the President's Freshman Award and, and Engineering Science invited me into their fold. Uh, I still remember that letter, which was after my first year. I was down at the shore, I think Avalon or Stone Harbor, and, uh, and I saw the word research. And I asked my dad and my siblings, you know, what is, what, what is research? I kind of heard the, of this before. And as I looked into it, I got sold uh, on the fact that research was curiosity-driven, clean slate, the ability to apply what you're learning in the classroom into sort of hands-on stuff. And uh, so that was the beginning of where I am today. I can literally trace my entire arc of professional life all the way back to that moment of joining engineering science and thereby the University Scholars Program. Yes, I wanted to ask about that. How did you actually go about becoming a scholar? Just accepting that invitation. I, I, as a first-generation college student, I wasn't seeking things out. I just got lucky things found me. I did work hard. I uh, was fairly shy in my first year. Uh, so I, I still remember Friday nights at the library practicing calculus problems. That was, um, that wasn't all I did. Believe me, I, I had some typical first-year mischief going on. But I, I, in terms of entering into the University Scholars Program, it, it was through uh, engineering science, seeing in me uh, great potential. And given that I was willing and interested in research, um, that was a, a great match. What I came to learn also was, um, and it, it didn't influence my original decision, but wow, this is great. The professors in these smaller classes, uh, not just engineering classes, but the electives I took, know my name. They, I, I couldn't hide. For example, I remember a class, uh, I'll paraphrase the title, The Great American Novel, uh, but I also took a poetry class. I took a really cool class on American comedy. And what I loved was the engagement, the conversations. They read my journal entries, and all of this made uh, my nascent emergence as a, an intellectual really enjoyable, and I my identity sort of uh, started to take on from just guitar player, musician, hey, maybe I'm also uh, an intellectual or a scholar or, or something like that. That was, uh, um, now that I look back, I, that was starting to become part of my, my clothing, my, my tapestry, uh, my identity. So you talked about all these liberal arts electives that you were able to take as part of the general education curriculum, and you originally were pursuing electrical engineering, but ultimately you found your way into engineering science, and I've heard you describe yourself as a material science, or a material scientist, I should say. So how did you discover that 
was that through some experience on campus? Walk us through that process of like what lit that bulb for you. Well, I will say what it was not. It was not a class. <laughs> I took a class called material science, and I got a B in it. <laughs> for those of you P- listening, the dean of the honors college just said he got a B in a class. It is okay to get a B and now. And it became and then again. my passion also. So it's <laughs> and it was okay his major. <laughs> um, and that was that was frustrating at the time. But I did sort of see okay, there's some cool stuff going on there. But it. I got exposed to material science as uh, as a discipline in a hands-on way. At some point, I found out I needed to do a thesis. Um, just like, oh, okay, I got to do a thesis. So I met with some professors in this uh, uh, professor named Tom Hahn, H-A-H-N. He, he was here at Engineering Science and Mechanics. He's uh, now, I think he's still at UCLA. Uh, he had an uh, an opportunity, pretty big lab in the lowest level, I guess you call it the basement of Hammond building, uh, that I toured and I got to meet his team. And it was like one of those moments, you probably have a few in your own life where you kind of like look around, up, down, <laughs> it's like I've never seen anything like this. Like the first time you see a live band or the first time you go to like this killer amusement park. That was that moment for me, and I saw the machinery. I saw just a hustle and bustle, lab coats, uh, noise, high ceiling, machinery. And then I met this uh, PhD student named Song Chu, who took me under his wing. He assumed I already accepted joining the lab. He says, okay, when can you start? And, and I was like, okay, I guess this is how this rolls. Uh, Monday? <laughs> so all of a sudden I was in this lab and we were making epoxy. You've probably used epoxy for crafts or whatever. Uh, I studied this project that Song told me about, how epoxy cures from a liquid to a solid, and this is important for aircraft. It's like, okay, I never really knew there were glue in aircraft. Modern aircraft now uh, use composites that have a epoxy matrix. And the thing that really hooked me was he says, we're going to use sound to study that. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> the, the marriage of my passion for music and, and sound. It didn't really turn out that it had anything to do with music. It was sound, and we used sound waves propagating through epoxy to, um, to measure the advancement from liquid to solid. And you might already know this, but if you don't, the speed that, uh, by which sound propagates through water or other liquids is slower than it propagates through like steel or plastic. And so just by monitoring, measuring that sim- simple thing, the sound speed through a medium can give you a measure of the uh, advancement of the cure state of the material. And so I spent a, a couple years doing precisely that. I guess the, the negative Nelly way of describing that is I watched or I listened to glue dry. <laughs> uh, but it was much more exciting to that. And I would show everybody my results, whoever was willing to listen. And as a senior, once I turned 21, one of the PhD students and I, his name was Scott White, rest his soul, we would uh, hang out at Cafe 210 West, you know, Cafe West. Uh, and I, at that point, I was like, I got, uh, I felt like I was a scientist, and we would pontificate over, you know, a beer about what the future of the field was. And I was one year in, <laughs> here I am, 35 years in, uh, 
still uh, working on these problems that started way back then. And you mentioned the thesis, and I think your thesis was, was probably related to this particular research. Can you offer your insights on the thesis process, the research, writing it, and what advice you have for scholars as they're navigating that process that both of, both of us have gone through? I can describe it at the moment when I was doing it and now looking back. At the moment, it was a requirement for me, but it was a welcome requirement because my colleagues and I, my classmates and I, we did it together. I still remember there was a computer lab that we would, we were pretty disciplined as a group to, to have like these writing sessions at the, you might, re if you've ever seen sort of a computer museum, the Macintosh, as it had just come out, the, you know, there was a mouse. Oh, what's, what's a mouse, you know? And then a little bit, we had the Mac Plus, I think. So we sat around the room and we would just have like these writing sessions and making progress. I think my thesis ended up being, I don't know, 60 or 70 pages, something like that. But we, we definitely took the building block approach. Let's get a couple pages done, and then we can work on other things together. We were great friends in engineering science. And one thing I did realize that I enjoyed a lot was the artistic element of writing a thesis. So I had these graphs of sound speed versus time and, and variations thereof. And I really took great pleasure in a graph well constructed. And then what I found is whenever I had a graph made, I could start to build a storyboard like you would if you're making a movie. And so I would lay out these graphs that I would print out in the computer lab and say, well, what is the story? And my, my professor helped a little bit, but this became sort of a, the artistic element for me that, that really drove the writing of each chapter. And so once I had these images I was so proud of and I wanted to convey to my professor, the other grad students and, and my uh, classmates the story, the thesis began to write itself as shown in figure two. Uh, we're plotting sound speed versus, and, and it just rolled out. Uh, and this is the advice I have always given to my PhD students, my undergraduate researchers, is work on the storyboard and the thesis writing. It practically writes itself because you just imagine, Sean, if you were uh, sitting next to me and I had 10 figures, uh, that might be how I describe it. And if you just hit the record button virtually or actually, then you can write these paragraphs. And pretty, I mean, if you take that approach, it's 10 pages a week and so, uh, to, to pull that off. And it's... it's um, it's enjoyable. Now, as I look back and over time, I've come to realize, and this, is, this won't come as news to you or many of our listeners, but writing is an extension of thinking. In fact, it's a, it's a way to get what you think you have figured out in your head. Uh, it really tests that when the moment you take uh, figuratively pen to paper, it really tests the logic that, that might, you might seem to have everything figured out. As soon as you try to draw a conclusion, like, hmm, that doesn't act, uh, A plus B does not equal C as I've written it. What that says to me is there's power in writing, uh, whether it's your daily journal or your thesis, and it needs to be done as you do research. Because if you try to do it just at the end, sort of like I did as, uh, as when I wrote my senior thesis, my, my um, 
honors thesis, uh, it's risky business because your writing itself will introduce questions you didn't pose when you're in the lab or in the studio. So you better get some of that writing done as you go. So, oh my gosh, I need to do this other experiment because I really want to be able to write this sentence and authentically believe it uh, and, and it be proven. So I always uh, recommend a living document that has a paragraph here, a figure there, um, and type as you go. Um, I think the students that really thrive in this area are writing as the data, the experiments rolling. Just see what can you say about that. And one paragraph a day is kind of a good pace early, and then it accelerates from there. Great advice for those of you listening. Both of us have done it. Definitely do not wait until the last minute to complete your thesis. Now, Pat, you mentioned you spent some time at CAFE down on College Ave. So obviously you weren't always in Petit Library. You weren't always in the lab. Were there any other things that you were involved in on campus, kind of in our mission tenet of creating opportunities for leadership and civic engagement, or just finding ways to relax and enjoy the fact you were a Penn State student? So, um... I did lots of things. I now that I'm back at Penn State, I realize how little I did, because <laughs> as you know, uh, somebody further along in life, I realize, oh my God, Center County State College, um, the Commonwealth at large is a playground. Like I'm a runner. I love outdoors. I love hiking. I didn't do any hiking when I was here as a student. I can't believe I didn't. Uh, but I did do. Uh, uh, lots of engaging things. We had a student org, Society of Engineering Science, that I was one of the sort of, I was never the president, but I, I did help run the meetings. I, I had some title. Um, and I really loved um, work, working, doing work on behalf of the other students. I drew so, uh, some uh, fulfillment from doing that. And I learned some early chops about how to, how to organize a meeting and that kind of thing. And so I'm pretty good at this, uh, even though... Uh, I'm an introverted uh, person. I found fulfillment enough fulfillment in doing that that it was worth sort of the, the stretch for my natural state of being. So I did that on campus. Um, I also joined a band uh, called Absolute Fifth. I think I joined that band in my second year, um, and that went for a few years. And we would play downtown at most of the bars. We played at a few fraternities top 40 but during the 80s which i think was fantastic music so and basically i played electric guitar um some rhythm guitar some lead guitar and i would do vocals on talking heads the cars things that were kind of in my range and a little bit like uh, nothing like journey or anything like that where <laughs> where you actually needed a good voice but um uh, so I, and I don't know, how, we had like 80 songs we could do. Nothing was written down. If I tried to play all these songs like from memory now, no way. My brain, my 55-year-old brain would, wouldn't be able to handle it. But 19-year-old me could remember 80 songs, no problem. <laughs> and we, we had a blast doing that. And that was my main social life, um, I, which was great for a somewhat introverted personality. I could engage in that community but not have sort of the social pressures that would be introduced as soon as I would take the guitar off of my body, you know, and, and have to engage in, in uh, that kind of world, which was not my comfort zone. Now, you mentioned you have uh, this love for State College, for Happy Valley, for Center County. You actually stayed an extra year here to complete your master's degree. What was that experience like? Oh, that was, it was different. So um, I loved it. So in my fifth year, I was a graduate student, so a master's student in the same research group, but it was like the experience was night and day. I had 
far fewer classes to take, so I had a lot more freedom to spend time doing my new love, which was being in the lab and taking, taking a deeper dive on my research. And I felt like in the group I was in, my, the things I would say were at an elevated level. People would be like, oh, he's the expert on this. And I, I just felt uh, a different stature. Uh, on, on the personal side, I moved uh, from uh, a townhouse I had shared with my roommate all through undergrad. Mark Soroka and I, um, great friends. That, that was great. Uh, I moved in with other grad students that were more in my discipline. I, I got more into cooking then. I had to kind of feed myself more than like when we, uh, it's, I don't know, as undergrads, I, I don't know what I did for food. <laughs> but so I kind of got into more adult living. But I, I, I still didn't have a car. I was always on the CATA for everything. At the, in my entire five years at Penn State, I I just got around on CATA, which was cool. I mean, I did have to know the schedule. I had that yellow CATA pass for five years. Um, so, and, and then I wrote a master's thesis that by that time, I, I, knew, I, knew, I knew how that works. And uh, if I go by extension into PhD, um, I was able to complete a PhD in just three and a half years because I knew uh, where the average was like five or six years. I just was all business all the time from day one. <laughs> It was amazing. I went to University of California at Santa Barbara. I learned about it through some faculty at Penn State. The materials program at Santa Barbara was highly ranked. And Vasu Veradan, one of my professors in engineering science, I was comparing Cornell and UCSB, and uh, she very promptly told me to go to UCSB, not because of the institution, but because of the discipline I, that was available to me there, materials versus mechanics. She said, oh yeah, materials uh, has so many opportunities for you and you've already got some experience in that. Um, and I had a brochure. So they invited me. I had gotten an NDSEG fellowship um, that kicked in while I was still at Penn State. I didn't know what that, somebody encouraged me to apply. I got it paid a stipend to do research. I was pr happy that I got that. I didn't know that it had national meaning. Meaning, So when I applied to UCSB, I think within days they accepted me and later they told me, well, you, you came with money. Why would we not, <laughs> you know, not, and I had some strong credentials through, uh, through Penn State. Um, and what I found there was a whole different way of living. Instead of catabus, I was bicycle every, I rode my bike uh, I did eventually get a car, but I rode my bike everywhere. There was trails to get to work. And there I learned how to do design. And that was where sort of the artistic, creative side of me really came to life. Uh, and the reason I needed to do design, and I didn't do that much of it as an undergraduate, like true like engineering design, I did some of it, but there I needed to make something. That my professor said, here's the project study how liquid crystals deform and flow. And to do that, you need to make them flow and you need to look at them under the microscope. So I said, okay, how do I do that? He said, well, that's the problem. We don't have a microscope to do that and we don't have a flow machine. <laughs> so I said, okay. So the, I couldn't do my research until I built the equipment to do the research. It's almost like 
uh, getting a job to be an astronomer. And sorry, you have to build the telescope to, you know, <laughs> it's exactly what it was like. So I spent a year working with uh, Hans Rudi Stuber, this amazing uh, head of the physics machine shop at Santa Barbara. He, um, very sophisticated, he loved life, and so we would have a cappuccino and talk about my design, and then we would go into the shop and start drawing. He said, young man, you need to learn how to do you know, engineering drawings. So he taught me all on paper, not a single computer, layering those thin pieces of paper you can see through, and, and eventually I had this amazing three-dimensional design of a rheological microscope. The rheological was the flow, and the microscope was the looking at microstructures. And after about a year, that thing was built, and it existed, and boom, I was like, oh my god, I have a thing in front of me that enables me to do experiments nobody else in the world can do. And it was in my mind, and now it's on the table. And that was transformative for me, and I hope any scholar, uh, whether you're a first-year student or a graduate student or an experienced scientist can experience the joy of of making something that never existed before, and then it worked. So, um, I, I, I you can't see this on the podcast, but I'm smiling now because the memories of that those weeks when it first worked, and we were getting data nobody else had available to them, sort of like the Webb telescope. It's like, oh, n nobody's seen this before. The data that was on the, the images that were coming up on the screen for me, nobody had ever looked at before. So everything was immediately publishable. It was, uh, of course, with, with peer review. Uh, but it was a moment of absolute joy combined with hope because I knew, oh, this is going to work. I will get a PhD and I will get to share the news of this interesting science for those interested in liquid crystals. Uh, and, it, and it worked. So for those of us who have no engineering background, what exactly do you use liquid crystals for? Ah, liquid crystals have the optics of crystalline materials and the mobility of a liquid like water. And in society, they're used in displays like your computer. Uh, you have liquid crystal right in front of you. <laughs> uh, and the reason uh, liquid crystals are used in displays is that with a tiny little electric field, you can rotate the molecules from one direction to another, and that uh, makes a pixel uh, a certain color. And so uh, since locally, the, you can differentiate which pixels uh, have the rotation, you can have images, a screen of a Word document or a picture, and that, that was transformative for the computer uh, world. Uh, and since then, uh, liquid crystal displays and liquid crystal technology has appeared in like privacy shields. If you ever see windows that change their shade, uh, uh, the shading automatically, uh, generally under an electrical stimulus. So apply an electric field, the molecules rotate, they look different. So if you are using a laptop or listening to, on your phone right now, you can thank Dean Mather for <laughs> contributing to that. I have my uh, laptop up here with my questions for the Dean. So thank you, Pat, for your contributions to that, to that field. Happy to help you. <laughs> so you didn't initially go into academia, though, with your PhD. You actually went into say, kind of a public-private role and I'll let you explain it, but how did you go about landing that first job after, your, after you got your PhD? That's a great question. You know, as a first-gen student, like, I always felt responsible for paying for my education. So I didn't realize in grads, a lot of grad students, they get, like, teaching assistantships or somehow they get funding uh, through their professors. I didn't 
nobody told me that trick. So as my, um, so I applied for a fellowship from the government that helped me get th through part of my PhD. And then I saw the money was, okay, I'm not done my PhD yet. Uh, and I didn't even feel like I could go to my professor and say, hey, what are we gonna do about this financial situation? So I started just looking, well, how can I raise money? And I, in a conversation on campus, I, somebody said, hey, have you heard about the Palace Night program? Because I was explaining, what am I gonna do about money? I said, what's the Palace Night program? He says, oh, if you're interested in um, uh, federally, uh, federal labs, like Department of Energy, Department of Defense, uh, Department of Commerce, they actually want to recruit PhD um, students into their laboratories so that after you have your PhD, you can be a staff member doing really cool government research, government-funded research. So, okay, and Palace Night was specifically for the Air Force. So I did some reading about, well, what's the Air Force up to? I never really thought of science connecting to Air Force, but if, it may sort of makes sense for the Air Force to do all the amazing things it, it does uh, to protect us. There's technology everywhere, not just in the aircraft. So I found that, oh, there's basic research being done by all of the Department of Defense agencies, the Air Force being very strong in that area, and I found out they even have a project related to liquid crystals, <laughs> not for displays, but for uh, structural components that are lightweight, for rockets in particular. Uh, so I, bada bing, bada bang, I found out that, oh, they would pay for the rest of my PhD if I committed to joining their lab for like three years for every one year that they supported me. And so I looked into it still further. My professor dro drove with me to Edwards Air Force Base which is north of Los Angeles, and got to see the lab. It was up on a mountain. Why is it on a mountain? Because that's where they do rocket test firing. <laughs> it's like, oh, I got to see you know, a rocket engine. And I said, this is a great deal. I don't, I, I've not done my PhD yet, but I will have a job at that lab doing liquid crystal research for uh, a, a decent salary. And, and that's how I ended up doing um, not as a civilian doing basic research for the Department of Defense, particularly the Air Force. And, and it was all about, not about fighter jets, it was all about their mission to, uh, uh, to deploy satellites in space for the Department of Defense and all the materials issues associated with making that happen. And I, did, I ended up doing that for five years. I want to go back to one point you were talking about earlier with the funding. I think I've said this on previous episodes, but a piece of rec advice I always give to students is you're probably paying for your undergrad, maybe your family's helping you, maybe you have scholarships or loans. Always, if possible, with maybe the exception of law school or medical school, get somebody else to pay for your graduate education. That can be a TA or an RA, like, like Pat was saying, or if you're going back for an MBA, get your employer to pay for. A lot of employers offer benefits like that, so pursue that if you can. But as I'm going to put your dean hat on for a minute here, if a student is experiencing a situation like yours at the undergrad level and they're a scholar, what can, they, what can we do for them in the Honors College to help them if they're in a sticky situation? I, I would say the first, um, um piece of advice is to speak up. Uh, uh, if, if you remember nothing else is uh, n uh, for, for those uh, current scholars or future scholars listening, uh, there is uh, a staff member here for you. You can start with me. My door is always open uh, and I can point you in the right direction to help you find resources. Sean, you're, you're absolutely right. 
that um, every situation is a little different, so the conversation is really important. Tell me more, you know, uh, what are your interests and what might you be eligible for financial support? Um, and uh, there are so many different sources, and we don't expect our students to know all of that information, but, uh, but if you take the first step to reach out to one of us, just go to our website and you'll see uh, who to make an appointment with. We try to make that as easy uh, to navigate as, as possible. Um, uh, and if, uh, but if you do meet with challenges, just uh, send me a note, ptm101 at psu.edu. Come to my office hours, come to Dean with Don Donuts with the Dean, sorry. And, and, and I'll uh, set you uh, in the right uh, direction. Our staff are here by definition for scholar success. Sometimes part of that success, sometimes or often, it is, uh, has a financial element to it, just like it did for me, just like I'm sure it did for you. Uh, um, you know, we live in a world where you, know, you have to pay the bills. Sometimes that, that is very challenging, and so we're, we're here for you, and we, um, um, we're, we feel um, very fulfilled when we connect students with pathways to success, whether it be financial or academic advice. Well, you heard what to do if you are in a situation like that and how to get help. Now, I want to go back to your journey, Pat. You did eventually, obviously, get into academia since you, as we just mentioned, are the dean of the Honors College. So what drew you to get into academia from the Air Force research that you were doing? And how did you go about that? And tell us about those first couple of roles that you had prior to Syracuse, because I want to talk about that one specifically once we get through this next stage in your story. Sure. Um, I never pictured myself as a professor. When I was at Penn State, I did have a couple experiences that sort of planted seeds, however. I was a TA for a class called Engineering Graphics, I think in my junior year. And boy, did I love that. I love being able to help students navigate the laboratory that they were in and building circuits and whatnot. Uh, so I found that very fulfilling and then just uh, bookmarked that and never really thought about it much. Uh, and then when it came to Calc 3, <laughs> I forget what the number is, I really got Calc 3. Somehow that just gelled with my brain. So I knew vector calculus like the back of my hand. And I did find informally that I helped my classmates do well in that class by chalkboard kinds of late night studying. I was like, and they were very appreciative of that. And I felt that fulfillment of just helping them succeed and it, it, I benefited from the reinforced knowledge that, uh, of that field that I, I really liked, the vector calculus. So then, uh, but I really held faculty as a whole different breed <laughs> that, that I was not a member of. Sorry to mix metaphors there, but uh, I just did not identify as being a faculty member because they were so smart. <laughs> Uh, even though I was a scholar and got a PhD still, you know, I just met, you know, I just did the work, you know, I just did the work and got my PhD. Uh, now, fast forward, I, I was publishing a lot as an Air Force scientist. So I was at meetings, Materials Research Society, American Chemical Society, you name it, I was out a lot presenting my work, primarily just to tell the story. This is cool data, you know, and the Air Force is doing really cool things in this area. They, um, I was doing basic research, so much of it was either patented or published in peer-reviewed journal articles. And this, this gentleman named Bob Weiss, who's a professor at the University of Connecticut, approached me after my talk one time. He said, you would be great in the classroom. And I, I sort of uh, took a step back, and uh, we were having lunch. I said, I never, 
uh, never even dawned on me, like, tell me more. And he said, well, the way you explain things, you really bring it down to a, a level for the, that works for the audience. And your enthusiasm is infectious. Obviously, you're a good scientist. You'd probably be able to get funding for your research, which is part of being a successful professor. He says, I, I came to learn he had a motivation. They were hiring. <laughs> they were hiring in kind of my area, polymer science. He said, just, just apply. I think, you know, um, he's, he said, I'm not even on the search committee, but if you applied, I bet you you would uh, be a, a good candidate. So I applied and I got the job. <laughs> and um, I was scared. I was so scared. Well, first of all, I had to go from a 12-month salary with the Air Force to what academia pays as a nine-month salary to professors. And what they told me at the time, which is true still today, is if you get funding for your research, what happens is that each grant can probably be constructed so you get one month of summer salary for that grant. So if you can get three grants, you can have a 12-month salary based on the uh, addition of your academic salary and your summer salary. So what it boiled down to is the decision is, do I have faith enough in my ideas that I will be able to reconstruct 12 months of salary. And so I'm, re I'm inhaling because I remember the moment, uh, it was like a leap of faith. And the faith was in, do I have faith in my ideas? And it was a, it was a thing to be debated and to th be thought about. And I, I went for it. And boy, it worked out really well. So I got lots of funding. <laughs> I uh, had this financially it was uh, it was fine you know uh, and I felt good that oh people care enough about my ideas the National Science Foundation I got a career award Air Force I got a basic science award which is funding and I quickly grew a group that uh, was highly successful patenting publishing uh, and I was off to the races teaching uh, when I first got in the classroom I was so scared but I came to learn it was not I was not scared about can I teach them polymer science or thermodynamics. It was, these are 30 strangers I'm about to walk into a room with. And the, and the same fear I had there is walking into any social situation with a bunch of strangers. So uh, once I figured that out, then I was like, oh, okay, I just need to get to know every student one at a time. And then the fear completely diffuses. These are just normal human beings that want to learn. And uh, so, th and that's been my approach ever since that first couple years of academia. That start with relationships, and then the learning can happen. Now, I have a question that I didn't have, but your your comments I think raised. Obviously, a lot of our students are drawn to the honors college for the research opportunities, much like you were. Now, can you explain the difference between how you go about picking research topics when you work for, say, the Air Force versus your time at UConn? Is there are you told what you're researching versus how, what are, you mentioned your ideas and what you were interested in? What does that balance look like? Yeah, interesting. So in the Air Force, um, we did have some freedom for the how, but the what, what we were focused on, did come from above somewhere. So there was like a strategic plan where the Air Force was going, and I would never like doubt this planning. It was done by really smart people that had been doing satellite sorts of work for quite a while. And what, when the problems got to us, we were never told how to achieve the desired outcomes, make this material, this film, survive in space for at least three years. Oh, okay, that's a problem I can wrap my head around. <laughs> and so we would set about designing experiments to do that. So the freedom came in, in the how and the methodology and then 
the exciting part was you never knew what would work. You sort of went, followed your nose, went with hunches, and then you, I was able to be creative either with the molecules that we designed or the apparatus we designed, like going back to my PhD days, of making things that never existed before. Uh, so I found a lot of joy in that, even though the goals were established by the Air Force. Now in academia, it was w totally open-ended, which for some people can be intimidating. For me, uh, it was fine. You know, I, I had, by the time I got into academia, I had some really clear ideas about uh, what was needed in the world of material science. And I had just gotten into what's called shape memory which is kind of like flubber, if you, if you ever, so materials that change shape upon command. I was very excited, one of the early, I was one of the earliest uh, inventors of, of that type of material. So, so the, the projects just took on a life of their own. And then what I found is that once Hopefully you- Hopefully not actually yeah, like flubber Not actual though. life, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some people I guess are working on that, but uh, in AI and whatnot, but anyways. Uh, um, and then as I published and patented, um, I did find that companies started coming to me as, hey, could shape memory or could this other technology that you just published or patented about work in our products? So Boston Scientific, Nike, Procter & Gamble, Avon <laughs> uh, came to me to, to just, and I would do these uh, um, projects with them multiple years to see how the effects I was studying in the laboratory might influence their product design. That was really, uh, um, th that was uh, quite wonderful at UConn and then at, at um, Syracuse after that. And that's perfect tee up because I wanted to ask about Syracuse because two stops back on your journey, you were up the road at Syracuse and you were able to start and lead an entire research institute. So I wanted to ask you what drove you to start that and what you learned from that experience, maybe that even helped you know you step towards becoming a dean. Sure, uh, that's a great question because it, it was a, a big moment in my arc of a career at the, just before Syracuse, I was at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. That's why I'm a Cleveland sports fan, <laughs> if you ever wondered. And there I, I started to do some administrative work, mainly because, you know, if, if I didn't raise my hand, nobody else would. Faculty, um, who I love, <laughs> uh, do tend to focus on their research and their classes. And when it comes time to do administrative work, uh, they usually disappear. <laughs> so I was willing to do some administrative work just to experiment with it. And I did gra the graduate program, how to recruit graduate students, help them be successful. And I also got involved in assessment for accreditation, which is in the world of engineering. Uh, so I had some chops, you know, how to organize information, how to motivate people. I started to find I, oh, I'm pretty good at leading and influencing. I never read a leadership book in my life, but I was doing it. Um, so I gave a talk at Syracuse University, invited by Da Chang Ren, who is still there, uh, just because I knew him from UConn. He was a PhD student at UConn when I was there. He said, hey, Pat, come give a talk. I go there to give a talk, and uh, the, either they had a strategy or spontaneously they saw that I could do what they needed. And multiple people said, hey, there's a white paper floating around campus about a center for biomaterials that would be interdisciplinary and would... Uh, bring together physics, biology, chemistry, engineering, uh, the upstate medical university for applications of materials for healthcare. Uh, but we need somebody to lead it and sort of bring it all together and take it from a piece, literally one piece of paper to an institute 
or not to a center. So they said you should, and, oh, I'm sorry, there's an important part here. There was a family, uh, Mil Milton and Ann Stevenson from Syracuse. Uh, the Stevenson family had built a company called Anaplate, which does uh, metal finishing. Uh, and they were very grateful to their education, both Milton and Ann, uh, who are neither are, are living with us any longer. But at the time I met them and that they had established a professorship that uh, Ann was a nurse and Milt was a chemical engineer when they were students. They wanted to bring those two together and materials for healthcare was perfect. So somebody there at Syracuse saw an opportunity to combine their passion as donors, this white paper as a vision, and then me as a nascent leader who had never really led anything to come and the provost and the vice president of research got on uh, the, the engine <laughs> that drove this and recruited me there. And I had enough knowledge, enough insight to know when you can negotiate. So before I accepted the position, I negotiated for space. Somehow I had that wisdom and that proved to be very uh, important. So I got two floors of a building called Bound Hall as, you know, I've, my thought was if we're gonna build something, we need to co-locate the, the, and have a center of influence for for this work. So that negotiated, I and some faculty lines that I knew would be important, I signed the bottom line. And um, so I got there and we got to, I recruited faculty from all these different departments that were already on campus, made new hires, did the renovation project, helped faculty raise money, and it became the Syracuse Biomaterials Institute in partnership with Upstate Medical University and Syracuse University. It was a huge success, it was so enjoyable, so successful, and it was a different model for doing research, interdisciplinary research, where the designs were all centered around the students, not around the faculty. Now, faculty were heavily involved, and they benefited, but the design of our uh, the floors in that building I mentioned were all about what does a graduate student need to be able to do interdisciplinary research? Whereas the typical model is you work for a professor and that professor has this expertise. In an interdisciplinary field, no single professor has all the knowledge you need to succeed with your graduate research. So I had to build this structure and the relationships among the faculty so that every every PhD student that would go through, there'd be like three or four faculty in the room uh, at the defense and each brought their expertise. So the students graduated as an amalgam of all this knowledge of three or four faculty driven by the design. And that's why today, to this day, I realize the impact of uh, of architecture, spatial arrangements on human behavior, including collaboration, uh, something I'm very interested in for, for Atherton Hall, in, in fact. So that was a huge success, and it has morphed into something called the Bio-Inspired Institute, which is pervasive at Syracuse now, it's sort of built upon that early success with that interdisciplinary institute. So for those of you listening, Pat was just blowing while he was talking about this institute, the center at Syracuse, but you left that in order to become the dean down the road at Bucknell. So what drew you to that opportunity and to, to leave this center that you founded? Well, there's a professional and a personal element, as is often the case with big decisions. I was drawn back to Pennsylvania. I had, um, um, I had gone through a divorce and I had fallen in love. <laughs> Uh, and um, after, after a couple of years of just living, you know, solo, <laughs> uh, Tara and I, uh, my wife, uh, we um, uh, found each other. Uh, we happened to have been college 
uh, boyfriend and girlfriend. She was at Cornell. I was at Penn State way back when we found each other again through Facebook. And uh, and she lived in Pennsylvania. And so did my parents or my, my father, who's uh, still living, and my uh, my sister. So I was kind of drawn just to be back somewhere closer. The Syracuse, uh, the travel to come back and forth was extensive uh, from Syracuse. So I had this general personal drive to, to get back to Pennsylvania. So that's the personal side. On the professional side, I was really enjoying administration. Ah, can you believe it? Uh, I loved sort of, and the, what I loved about administration was the people part. So helping faculty and students be successful by things I had helped to design and structures I had helped to create. So as you recall, I'm very interested in design, molecules, apparatus, uh, interior design, architecture, Anderson Hall. Org, or, yeah, <laughs> organizational charts, you know, who would be interested in that? But I find the power of uh, all through people was really interesting. And so the next level for me in this opportunity came up, a search firm contacted me about Bucknell University was hiring a new dean. And I said, oh, I never thought about being a dean, but Bucknell was interesting because it was very student focused, particularly it's an undergraduate focused institution, uh, which I had come to love. I, I didn't mention it before, but at Syracuse, one of my strong suits and one of my approaches was a lot of undergraduates in my lab. So I really, felt like I knew what made undergraduates tick, you know, how to get them excited about research and so forth. So the, the Bucknell opportunity really was a natural progression of my administration. Geographically, it brought me back to Penn State, and uh, uh, Bucknell has a wonderful reputation. And I said, oh, okay, this will really um, help me do even more organizationally to help advance a college. And it was, uh, I'd done a little bit of strategic planning at Syracuse. This was going to be big strategic planning. And, oh, and the final thing that was very attractive to me was that Bucknell's small enough that the deans are right on the president's council. What I anticipated and what, what came to be true is the ability to see how a university works, which is very interesting to me. Uh, and being on that president's cabinet, I got to hear about the big financial decisions. I got to see a university go through the early days of COVID. I got to understand what a general counsel lawyer is at a university. And, um, and then I got to see the power of multi-college collaboration. We had a college of management, college of arts and sciences, and college of engineering, which was mine. It was a challenging job because I had never been a dean before. 75 faculty, 750 students, three buildings, one of which I helped uh, to launch the construction of. It was all so different. So the learning curve was as steep as it was when I was an undergrad. I, I don't regret a single day. It was fantastic. I was there for five years. And... Uh, it was a time of tremendous personal growth, tremendous growth uh, as an academic. And I kept doing research the whole time. <laughs> so I had a lab. I had undergraduate researchers in my lab. We uh, published quite a few cool things about nanofibers. <laughs> uh, and um, so I was able to keep uh, my foot in the laboratory there as well. So you're obviously an engineer. You're a scientist by trade, but becoming an, an administrator requires a lot of different skill sets, and there's some things that translate, like you said, with design. So how did you go about learning, even if informally through books or other mediums, to pick up any skills that you needed that you didn't already have to take on that kind of leadership role that would be helpful for students to be able to translate uh, maybe to their yeah. experiences? 
Well, first I did hire a coach. I had heard that there's such a thing as a coach, a life coach. In my case, it was called an executive coach. He, uh, he did not give me advice. He helped me find the answers that he knew uh, were within me. And uh, uh, so I would describe the, the challenges and the goals that I had. And then he would help me navigate this whole other literature uh, library uh, and experiences that was maybe common for somebody that, that maybe goes through management education but total, or psychology, but totally different than me. So I was like, oh my gosh, every book I read that would lead to three more books. And then uh, none of them were just like intellectual sort of perspectives. They were, I always chose books that were about the real world of relationships, influence, what makes people tick, motivation, personality types. So I, I started, uh, I went through a season of just um, extensive reading. I learned how I read, <laughs> uh, uh, which uh, sidebar, I, I like to listen to aud audible books while I read physical books at the same time. Then I can go through about 50 books a year or something like that. Just if I do only Audible or only the uh, hard copy, paperback or whatever, probably one book every f couple months. I don't know why. It's the way my brain works. I get distracted. So anyways, I just uh, uh, became so interested in what uh, makes human nature, management uh, theories, and so forth. And I was putting it to work just in time. <laughs> I learned about... Um, uh, all sorts of good, bad, and ugly about human behavior, and the next day that thing would happen. <laughs> and so I felt like uh, that's why the learning curve was so steep and, and exciting. I was, I was like, oh my God, I got to read that next chapter. That might happen tomorrow. <laughs> so now my library, if you come into my office, like half of it to the left are all the science and engineering books, about half, you know, some other 300 books are all the things that, you, you know, Patrick Lencioni, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, books like that, Brene Brown, her, I love her stuff. And that's what I read these days. I, I, I still like, for fiction, I love, like, mysteries, big John D. MacDonald fan. And then on the um, people, <laughs> nonfiction, I love biographies, and I love um, uh, all of these sorts of books I was just describing that are how pe what, what makes people tick, whether they're faculty, staff, students. Uh, we're all humans. <laughs> and it's really funny if you ever get a chance to visit with the dean in his office. Uh, we're recording here in the GFC, but if you're ever in his office, it's really funny to see his bookshelf because it's a book that's like some really technical polymer, <laughs> and right next to it is a Brene Brown book or some you know leadership habits book, which is just really funny to see. And I do want to say this is not sponsored by Audible, but I'm sure there's several other podcasts that you could listen to where you could get a discount code for your free book. So uh, this one is not sponsored by Audible, so nobody asked Pat to say that. That was just his authentic uh, representation of how he consumes his, his books. Absolutely, you're right, Sean. So this is coming out, we're recording in summer. This will be debuting in the fall. So when you're hearing this, Pat, you'll have been here for a year. But going back two years, in fall of 2020, our previous dean, Peggy Johnson, announced she was retiring. And obviously, you're one of our alumni, so you saw the announcement. What was your initial thoughts on if that was an opportunity for you, and what led you to pursue coming back to Penn State to lead the Honors College. Can you tell, and then also, what is actually like the search and hiring process like to become a dean? I know we have some other alumni that are deans, definitely something that I could see some of our students being interested in down the line or any alumni listening. So walk us through what you can of that experience. Sure, so as context, Tara and I were, were living in Lewisburg, I'm working at Bucknell, 
we did find ourselves coming to State College quite often <laughs> just to like go downtown or to go to a football game or you name it. I just, we just found ourselves making excuses to come out here. So, and being, cl- it was fairly close, you know, we could, we could just do it. And sometimes we would just stay over in a hotel. So that's context. I was like, oh, it's one of the nice features of working at Bucknell right next to Penn State. And I did get uh, more and more involved with the engineering science and mechanics department. Judy Todd, uh, who, who was the department head, uh, was very welcoming to me uh, whenever I was on campus. Um, so then I did see that Peggy uh, Johnson, who I've been, mon- you know, saw she was doing such a great job with the college. Uh, as an alum, I was just paying attention. So I got the magazine or uh, read somewhere that she was going to retire. So it did plant a seed in my mind, like, well, I'm just going to keep mon- monitoring, because dream- always a dream would be, especially once I became a professor, to come back to Penn State. No opportunity had ever come across my desk about that kind of thing. So I hit pause, and then a search firm uh, contacted me about the opportunity. Is that happy to? <laughs> you know, I just I did not hesitate. I just applied. Um, and now a search like this at a dean level and uh, that involves a search firm. There's um, since you asked about process a little bit. There's it's really nice because the search firm is somewhere in between the university hiring you and the candidates. So they're really friendly with you. They give you all, answer all of your questions so that you can put your best foot forward. So I, I had a lot of questions for the search firm, and uh, it was able to construct what I thought was you know my best package, you know, my CV cover letter that expressed my vision, things that I would be interested in bringing to Schreier Honors College were I to be its its next dean. This was during COVID, so everything, I think everything about the process was on Zoom, (laughs) which is funny because as I think back, the relationships I have now started on Zoom, and it's hard for me to exactly remember if it it didn't seem like it was negatively impacted by the the nature of the the, uh, Zoom framework. So we had a couple passes through like I guess I was in a short list candidate so I, I went to one, a meeting where I just had like 30 minutes you know tell us your vision for honors education <laughs> and so, uh, so I did my best and made it to the next round I became a finalist and then there's there's a couple uh, uh, details there but in the end I still remember very clearly I got to meet President Barron our former president as part of the interview process that alone was like for me, wow, I've made it, you know, <laughs> to, and so I did my best, I was a little nervous, but he was very warm and helped the conversation to be real by his very nature. It was in his, I think it was in his home office. And uh, he asked me um, about all of my transitions. His interview style is, Tell, why did you make that move or that move? He, he told me later when I got to teach with him a little bit in Presidential Leadership Academy that that's his, met, he says that's very revealing about a person's values, sort of their thought processes and so forth. And then I, I got the job. I remember Nick Jones, uh, then I got to work with uh, uh, Provost uh, Nick Jones on, former Provost, on sort of the final negotiation and things like that, which went very smoothly. And then before you know it, a couple months later, I'm here in, you know, uh, Lisa Malat showing me my new office, where my parking spot is. And and then the students came and it was like a whirlwind. And it was just fantastic. And I just need to remember because your first day was move-in week. So there was no, no pause there or anything. No pause. It was I, uh, August 15th officially was my first day. 
and it, the the uptick in you know lines and, and downtown and cars and students smiling and laughing it was all happening at the same time i wouldn't do it any other way it was a fantastic way to start now you've mentioned you know obviously the provost is your boss Right. And in a company, obviously, universities use the same title for general counsel. Right. But we have a lot of unique terms like provost, like dean. And I think, you know, we're both first gen students. And for any others listening, we have some weird terms in higher ed, if we're being honest. Registrar, bursar, what what are these things? So how would you define the role of dean? How do you approach it, especially for such a unique college like the Schreier Honors College, where it is interdisciplinary, it is focused on undergraduates, we don't have our own faculty, we partner with all the other colleges across the university, both at University Park and across the Commonwealth. How would you define the uniqueness of this compared to your previous role as a more traditional dean at Bucknell? I'd like to think of deans, uh, whether at a tradition like Bucknell or Penn State or wherever, as a general manager uh, in that the, um, they're responsible for everything in that unit. So uh, in my case now as Schreier's dean, I'm responsible primarily for the scholar success. So it's a scholar first, you know, and that means getting to the Honors College, navigating Penn State, navigating Schreier Honors College, and succeeding with the research and off into the world uh, and everything that that entails. We happen to do that by a living learning community uh, with fantastic staff that specialize in different elements of scholar success. And so there's space, there's people, there's uh, academic sort of uh, navigation and all of it matters. <laughs> and so, um, meantime, uh, so that's, it might sound, that sounds sort of operational. Meantime, I'm, uh, I'm given the mandate of uh, ever improve the, the thing you're leading. And so you have to think, uh, like the Wayne Gretzky kind of thing, where's the puck going? <laughs> uh, be, and then be, the college needs to be there. So I like to think of uh, current eighth graders in K-12. Uh, what how should we prepare so that when they come to our college, should they do so, we're ready for them? Because we need to start now for those eighth graders because it takes time to change, especially in, a, in, in higher ed, just like in government. Things, things move uh, with the basic time scale of an academic year. So if you want to do something next year, you got to start last year. <laughs> so in that sense, there's the general manager kind of feel, but there's also the owner. Uh, you, you know, owners of small businesses, if they're not doing it, it's not getting done kind of mindset. And so uh, there's a certain kind of passion that's like um, la first one to turn on the lights, figuratively, it's the last one to turn off the lights. Like, And thinking about, are we starting now what needs to exist for the success of current, today's current eighth graders? And that that is super exciting to me it complicates the job a little bit. You can't just do well right now, you have to be thinking about the future and uh, what do we change now. So that's why strategic planning comes about, assessment, me measure what matters is one of the books on my shelf. I view Schreier Honors College, since you mentioned compare with Bucknell, as a horizontal college as opposed to a vertical. Like a, a dean of engineering or a dean of communications, or whatever, they're responsible in a vertical way for majors that happen to exist within that college. We have all majors, and that's why I view us as sort of fabric that stitches together horizontally across all of the disciplines. Super exciting as, as a dean. And so what that means is partnerships are everything. 
and a good partnership starts with a good relationship. And so uh, thank God the um, deans uh, here at Penn State are so collaborative, so friendly, so welcoming. They always take meetings with me. They always reach out, very friendly. Uh, and so uh, we have conversations about, hey, where's the future going for you? Where's the future going for me? How can we partner? And so I think, as t time will tell, but I imagine lots of different synergies. Win, 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 wins. <laughs> Scholars win first. And then, hey, with that thing you're trying to accomplish in arts and architecture, I think Schreier students may be the best ones to pilot that. Th those kinds of uh, uh, partnerships and collaborations. So in a sense, because it's horizontal, it's very, very provost-like, to use one of those terms, in scope. It covers all the disciplines. Uh, which works for me because, gathered by now, I'm interested in music as much as I am in polymers, as much as I am as human behavior. So um, I f when I meet a student and they're telling me, what, what are you up to in the world? And they tell me, I'm like, it's all interesting to me and I'm, I'm, I'm curious by nature. So uh, definitely not your typical engineer. Uh, and I think this job requires people that not just appreciate but are passionate about all the disciplines that make up a university. So I do want to ask you about work-life balance in the music and everything, but I do have one question that popped up while we've been talking. You've mentioned negotiating a couple of times, and particularly about kind of your more recent roles that are further into your career, but what advice would you give to scholars that are negotiating maybe that first or second job out of college to get the most, you keep reading as we're recording in July around all these headlines of tight labor markets and all these things, so certainly scholars can be in a position of strength, maybe that they haven't, would not have been able to be in, in past markets. What advice would you give them as they're approaching maybe that first role or, or negotiating a, a research package for grad school? What have you found that's worked for you that could translate? Yeah, that's a great, quite, very practical question. Um, there's a couple elements to it, one internal, one external. On the internal side, uh, it's great to, uh, one of the books I, I love, Crucial Conversations, has this uh, dogma, which is start with heart. And so, and that's an internal journey, which might sound a little touchy-feely, but you really have to understand your own, and get real with your own values. Um, and they might not be the typical values uh, that you would know about, or, or, or that you would hear about, I should say. And so, um, I'd be happy to talk with any listeners about, you know, how to ex explore that in the class I teach, we go into that. But for example, uh, one of my values is uh, optimism when you can see a path forward for you and others. And that's about me. That's, that's um, I'm wired that way. Uh, in interpersonal relationships, I'm looking for optimism in others as well. And if I don't see that, there might be a little tension. But then in a company, if you're, if you're deciding, you know, if you're comparing employers uh, uh, in communities in even fields, if you're comparing like um, pharmaceutical industry versus another industry, as you get into that, take one of those values. In my case, uh, one of mine is optimism. And ask questions of others during that interview process to see, is there hope that exists among this community that you will achieve and make a difference in whatever your world is? And for me, if there's not, if it's like, yeah, we're doing this, you know, to make a buck or whatever, uh, and, and, uh, and there's not sort of this community hope, then I would probably choose another company. And that, so you view the opportunity through a lens of multiple values that you take some time to figure out what uh, to identify. So that's sort of the internal journey, which is challenging, but worth doing by journaling, reading books, uh, talking with others. 
The other one that would be maybe a little more practical is work your network. And so you may not, might not have a network yet. So in Shire Honors College, uh, you, Sean, would be a really uh, great help, as would Lisa Kraczynski and others, to say, hey, I'm thinking about going into this industry. Who among our alumni have uh, you know, maybe five steps ahead or 25 steps ahead of me. Can I chat with them? Can I talk with them? Or at least connect with them on LinkedIn. And then uh, I have found, well, for personally, I've, had, I've benefited from these conversations. What's it like there? Uh, do you know anybody there? Do they like it? Uh, is there a growth opportunity there? Uh, there? I noticed a big salary offer difference between this company and that company. Well, an alum might say, well, it costs a lot to live there, so of course it should be, you should have a higher salary. So this sort of a practical advice that come from, and the reason I mentioned alumni is they automatically, in my experience, care about you as a person asking. And a 15-minute conversation can save you five years, literally. <laughs> uh, so I would seek that out. And if you don't have that network yet, uh, that's a beauty of our college, um, if you happen to be a member of the, our community. Uh, uh, but even if you're at a, di a different university or a different situation, the, the general principle is to uh, make connections and ask questions of those that are just a few steps ahead of you and have recently encountered that. And, th and then you have to make a decision based on <laughs> your decisions are difficult. But if you have that, those values to look at the thing through and some connections that can give you their lived experience, you can make a, an informed decision. Now, you were talking about your values, which I appreciate, and I thought it was really interesting. So if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I have a questionnaire that I send to all of my guests that helps me with research and prepping this so that each one is relevant to the conversation. For example, if somebody didn't study abroad, I don't want to ask to study abroad questions, so that's what the purpose of that questionnaire is. And Pat, you're the first person who's ever listed out all of your core values, your personal purpose, your personal vision statement, which I thought was really, really cool. How did you go about developing these? And, and also, what inspired you to actually like write them out? And how would you suggest that scholars could go about doing that for their own personal vision and values? My motivation was, as, as I started to try to understand other people in my different roles, like what makes them tick, why, why is there this conflict between these two other people? Um, I started to realize, well, how well do I know myself? And I had read, and my coach had mentioned, that if, when it comes to making big decisions, you got to have some clarity on where you're going and what you value. So for uh, mission and vision, I sort of took a page out of how organizations do that, and I just uh, did it, reflected it on my, applied some sort of methodology to myself. Uh, and these things are not static in time, by the way, so I have to revisit. But I, I like to write, and as I mentioned earlier, to me, writing is a form of thinking. And so I could think I know what my purpose in the world is, but once I had to write down a sentence, that really drove a whole lot of inquiry that took uh, months and months. <laughs> Um, and, and clarity on, uh, I won't go into the details here, but clarity on it has been so helpful to make, it made the Schreier, coming to Schreier Honors College decision so easy. Because <laughs> I had clarity on my values and, and my vision for like, when I look back, the, the vision one is like, imagine you are at a podium and you have family and former colleagues that are celebrating your retirement. What do you want to be able to say and feel at that moment? And that can drive, you know, a vision statement. And one, an element of my vision statement is a legacy 
of really positive relationships and creative artifacts. So a lot of things about people, but I really do like to make new things. And the artifacts could be organizations, they could be polymers, uh, whatever. And you know, if I think, you know, at that podium, I, I'll be happy if I can look back and say, well, I have, I've had some really good relationships that then led to uh, other people having uh, been influenced by sort of my role in their life. Uh, and look at all those cool polymers. <laughs> so, um, and on the value side, um, and this is something I'm really passionate about for our college and its scholars and, st and staff alike, is just um, take a moment to try and get clear, clear on your internal values, your core values, so that you can make decisions and live in integrity. And by integrity, I don't mean something judgmental. I mean that decisions you're making, actions you're taking, actually resonate in a positive way with things that that you really hold in high esteem. And then I think that generally brings joy in life. I think that's really helpful for students who are listening. So highly recommend taking that time to write those out. I've started doing that myself and it, it's definitely therapeutic. So obviously even, you know, you've mentioned things that you like to do and even a dean needs to unplug and get away from Atherton and Simmons. So what does your time away from the college look like? How do you, how do you relax and find some balance? Tara and I do love this place. So just the setting is amazing. We love our neighborhood. I, um, when I do have free time and, and you have to make free time and uh, sidebar, it's not so much free time, it's, it's, you know, people talk about time management. I think about it as energy management. So doing things that can create energy are well worth doing, even if they take an hour. So it's just a philosophy. When I'm creating energy, I like to do that by cycling. Tara and I have a tandem bicycle that's bright yellow. You might see it around town. Uh, and we also have uh, individual bikes. So we like to explore out west of State College. There's lots of great roads out there. Tadpole uh, Road is really cool. I like to run. I did the Nittany Valley Half Marathon in December. It was very cold but it was a, and hilly, but it was a great race. I like to have a race always on the calendar to get give me a reason, motivation to train. And I, I still, to this day, which started way back, uh, even before Penn State in high school, play, I play guitar, the music studio at home. Not, not a fancy thing, but a way to, uh, sort of like writing the thesis, if, if I'm gonna noodle around on the guitar, I like to create songs, not just write them, but then record them. So just like writing is expository. If I'm gonna record a song, kinda of have to have it all together and you know, the lyrics have to make sense and the music has to, to make sense. So and then I don't do anything with the songs. But I'm I'm satisfied. This is just me, but I'm satisfied when the song is recorded, uh, because then that that exists. And just like creating a new rheological microscope, creating a new polymer, creating a song, somehow it gives me the same sort of joy and fulfillment. Well, I would certainly say it feels like it fits with your value of leading those creative artifacts. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah definitely. To yeah, celebrate. Yeah. And obviously, if you were listening at the very beginning and paying attention, you heard a little bit of the dean playing some guitar while I was introducing him, and he has it sitting here with him. Last week, he messaged me and said, hey, can I bring my guitar and play on the show? And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, if you have an original piece, because, you know, copyright infringements, and I don't want this episode taken down by Apple or Spotify, um, I said, 
that if you have something original and you do write your own music, as you said. So for the first time uh, on this show, a musical interlude before we go into our final third of reflective questions. So um, this is this is something I wrote um, just noodling around a little bit. The song, to be honest, the song isn't fully uh, completed yet, but I'll just give you a little preview of it. If you couldn't see, would you draw? If you couldn't feel, who would you be? Would you be anything at all? I can't believe you cannot see the beautiful picture of you and me if you'd only let go and let our feelings grow. Our senseless passion could finally be real It's senseless, I know Senseless I really can't see how you and me could be It's real but senseless Like I said, it's a work in progress, but that's the main idea. That's I wrote that uh, when Tara and I first started dating, the early parts of that. Long time ago. <laughs> well, well, thank you for, for sharing that with us and our listeners. Uh, I hope a takeaway is that even... I know our particular a lot of our scholars are in engineering like you were and there's this sense of like I have to focus on all the STEM things and I think you you know you show that you can be very multifaceted you can have pursuits in the liberal arts in the arts in STEM and enjoy all of them at the same time absolutely and I uh, absolutely and I think uh, sometimes it's a challenge to embrace that mindset and it's but it's so helpful to do so now I want to ask some reflective questions here towards the tail end of our, our conversation Pat, what would you say is your biggest success to date? I would say biggest success to date, I'm so proud of my children. We have a blended family, so my two sons and three stepdaughters. I guess when I remember at that podium thing, I, I will be um, first and foremost reflecting on how my kids have done. And not much, not what have they accomplished, but how have they done in the realm of relationships bringing joy, experiencing joy themselves and bringing joy to others. And sometimes that is through some accomplishments, but also through family, their families, et cetera. Uh, so that would be, uh, so I'm very proud of all, all five of them. What am I, on the professional side, what am I most proud of? Oh, it's like <laughs> choosing your favorite kid. It's impossible. I would say probably Syracuse Biomaterials Institute. I mean, I'm not, I ain't done yet. So it's, but at this moment, the creation of that institute and all that it has achieved and what it's become is, is a great source of pride. I don't know if I'd say it's the thing I'm most proud of because there's so many different things. That's one of them. Uh, I'm, finally, I would say um, you know, I have had a lot of PhD students, whether they were at UConn, Case Western, Syracuse, 
they have gone on and done amazing things. I think there's 28 students that did their PhD with me, managers of companies, professors in their own right, uh, that now have grad students and undergraduates in their lab. It's like, oh my God, it's such a beautiful thing to be in higher education because there's this ripple effect through the people. And so that, that will be endless. It's like an endowment, <laughs> an endowment of people that will be uh, endless because they will, the, uh, the next generation, the academic grandchildren and so on, will have a ripple effect. And that gives me great hope for the future. So on the flip side, what would you say is the biggest transformational learning moment or mistake that you've made and what you, what you took from that? Yeah, I had a lot of those <laughs> over the years. Um, one of them was um, usually it's in the area of assumptions. Um, that's why a, a, reading, a writing prompt I often give students in, in my own journal prompt is what am I assuming, what am I afraid of, and what do I really want? If you're not clear on those three things, you'll have a lot of anxiety and probably make some mistakes. I'd, I'd say one of the biggest mistakes I made as a, professionally was in uh, strategic planning at Bucknell. I moved at sort of the wrong pace. I, had a, I misread the community under the influence of my own ambition to get something done. <laughs> There's some details to it, but it was related to how research in scholarship makes its way into the strategic plan for the College of Engineering at Bucknell. And so I misread it at Bucknell for, uh, in the College of Engineering for a strategic plan to, to fly. It needs to, it's subjected to a vote and a supermajority is needed and I failed by one vote. <laughs> So I was like, oh, man, one minute. And I immediately called. I was, I was fundraising at the time. I was in Texas with, with the development officer, and I got the news. <laughs> and I was so disappointed, a little bit sad, you know. Uh, I called the president. The president brought me and said, oh, you know, this is life. This is how it rolls. You know, what, what would you do differently or what do you want, or what do you want to do going forward? So I just got real. It's my main, uh, and I learned so much from this. And I, later, I found a quote that would have been really helpful is, uh, progress happens at the speed of trust. So you got to keep measuring in, indirectly, not quantitatively. What's the level of trust among all the players in something as big as a strategic plan? And if I had had a better read on that, um, I probably would have gone slower. And then uh, I just got real. So we had a, an all-college meeting, and I just admitted. I said, I blew it. I misread where we were at with what, how research uh, relates to our strategic plan. What are we going to do? And we just, we went community on it. We crowdsourced it. We did, you know, we had roundtables, whiteboards, sticky notes. And then I had a, um, a team of about a dozen in the, that summer that just really roll up their sleeves and, and make this happen. And uh, at the right pace with all the right people, with all the right engagement. And then it the next time it was voted on, it was, it was unanimous. <laughs> so, um, so I learned a lot, including humility. <laughs> uh, it was it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing when it didn't pass because everybody knew I was really passionate about strategic planning, which I remain today interested in that. So, yeah, but but I learned, and now I look back, I have such f fond feelings about Bucknell. That college, all those people involved, despite that sort of failure, this is sort of broad advice, but failure is uh, related to taking risks. So I'm proud that I took risks and sort of leaned into it. It sort of broke the branch instead of bent the branch. <laughs> so, um, but if you're not failing occasionally, you're probably not taking risks. And that's, that's not a place I want to be. I want to take some risks. Yeah.
How would you suggest scholars approach mentorship, both as a mentee, but also as they grow in their career to serve as a mentor? Mentorship is very quite valuable. I've had uh, I've had some long-term mentors and some short-term mentors too for sort of like uh, ex subject matter expert kind of mentors. It, th these are relationships. So uh, my main advice is to just be yourself. Um, it's going to go, trust will be built um, to have meaningful conversations. You need to have that trust and respect only through authenticity. So you just gotta be yourself. And the mentor or the mentee will really appreciate that. I don't know, we, we as humans have a sense for authenticity. And so be, be yourself and, get, and be clear about what your goals are. You know, in a conversation, you're not gonna say, what are your goals and tell me your goals. But, but maybe, you know, it's worth saying, uh, you know, I'm really glad I got to know you. You know, is there, would it be possible for, for us to go in a direction where I tap into your knowledge about X, Y, or Z, either the field or what I should do? I really need some advice or can I bounce some things off of you? And just, you know, be honest about the goals that you have. Um, and then invest in the relationship. Relationships leak, to use an engineering metaphor. You have to keep filling them. And fill that, you know, you invest in a relationship. Say, hey, I haven't spoken with Eric in a while. Maybe I'll just drop him a note. How you doing, you know? I actually am curious, and I, we haven't spoken in a while. Is the family okay, you know? And people are human. <laughs> and so uh, they appreciate that when you express an interest in them. Uh, the worst thing you could do as a mentee is to just be, you know, so about yourself that it's not a two-way street. Mentors get a lot of fulfillment when they help you, but they are human. They want, you know, it's a social contract of some sort. And so I would say investing in each other. For those, you know, you want that mentor relation, mentoring relationship to, to be fulfilling, to be more just a contractual, like, advice that you can get by reading a book. Uh, otherwise, you would just read the book. And think long-term. Th I would say think long-term. You've mentioned a lot of people in this conversation that have helped you along the way, your family. Is there anybody else that you wanted to give a quick shout-out to, particularly from your days as a scholar or from your current time as dean? Uh, sure. Um, in, in every case where I've made a move, so I'll start with sort of the professional there's been somebody that took a chance on me because I was never quite fully qualified uh, for the job, including uh, Schreier. You know, I, I was dean of engineering, but I'd never, you know, I'm an engineer, so like, what does he know about it? <laughs> so by digging a little deeper and these, these hiring managers, provosts or deans themselves, they saw potential and took a chance with me. And I really appreciate that. And it sort of energized me to prove them right. <laughs> and then I, I have to mention my mom. Uh, whose, na I, whose name I share, she uh, was Patricia. She died young from leukemia in her 50s. But what she taught me is, um, uh, where my dad did uh, influence me in many positive ways. My mom taught me about uh, encouragement. If I had to distill it to one word, she taught me how powerful it is to encourage others. And so I've lived with that and I do today. You've shared a lot of great advice today. Is there any advice you wanted to share with students or potentially prospective students that just didn't come up in our conversation? Yeah, I, just in general, if I'm speaking to uh, a, a scholar listening today, I would say 
Uh, take it easy on yourself. <laughs> I fall victim to this, and, and, and many of the scholars I've met do, where you judge yourself. You're your world's worst critic, because what have you done lately? Sure, you got in the dryer, but, eh, you know, I snuck in, or what, you know, what that next thing. Even when you win an award, or something really good happens, you're like, eh, yeah, that's, that's no big deal, but what am I? You just have to live in the moment, and don't judge yourself. Just enjoy it. I, I would say, you know, instead of being critical of yourself, practice some self-love, you know, like what are the good things? You know, journaling can really help and then surround yourself to the extent you can with positive people. People that um, everybody has judgment on, on themselves, others and circumstances, but some do a better job of holding them at bay. And I think the world would be a better place with less judgment. Uh, and I would start with less judgment of yourself. If you need help with that, come see me. <laughs> Amen to that. You mentioned it earlier, but remind us, how can scholars connect with you if they want to either pick your brain from a mentoring perspective or if they have challenges as a scholar that perhaps you as the dean could help point them in the right direction? I'm glad you asked that. Um, PTM 101, 101. PTM101 at psu.edu. I'm very responsive to email. In fact, if I see 100 emails and three are from students, those are the first three I open. <laughs> and I'll, set, I'll find time with you, uh, whether it, often it's on Zoom, in, in my office hours uh, that uh, change semester to semester exactly when they are. And uh, if, if you don't want to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting, come see me at Donuts with the Dean, uh, Pizza with Pat. We'll try some new things, maybe drawing with the Dean. <laughs> uh, these things are somewhat bigger. And even a sidebar conversation can break the ice, and then maybe we'll have a deeper conversation later. Um, so multi-channel, whatever it takes. I'm on Teams. Uh, e email is probably the fastest way to get a response from me, though. You heard it directly from him. <laughs> now, final question. If you were a flavor of Berkeley Creamery ice cream, which would you be, and as a Stoller alum and dean in the Honors College, most importantly, you don't have a chance to write it out, but you can share verbally, why would you be that flavor? Okay, so this is a complicated story, and it has changed. So um, when I was still at Bucknell and I was coming out here, I would always get Peachy Paterno if it was there. Uh, and I liked it. I was like, um, I'm not like the biggest peach fan, but that ice cream was amazing to me. I, I didn't know about scholarship, so I, and I, but I love chocolate chip ice cream. Now, scholarship is, uh, I don't know the exact formulation, but I find, you know, once I got here, like, hey, this flavor exists. Uh, now I'm hooked, and I like it. <laughs> How do you describe why you like ice cream? I like the texture, <laughs> the uh, complexity. I really like, for me, I like ice cream after cycling or running because there's nothing like hanging out uh, outside Berkey and with Tara and just, now I eat ice cream way too fast, probably three times faster than Tara. So then there's all this, also this moment of waiting. She tries like every flavor there, but I'm, I'm now just a scholarship guy. <laughs> and I am influenced by the fact that that is the, obviously the origin story is with our college, but it's a really good ice cream. Absolutely. It's a great, <laughs> great remembrance for our founding benefactors, uh, William and Joan Schreier. So I believe uh, uh, chocolate chip ice cream was his favorite, if you aren't familiar with the story. So that's why Stoller's Chip is a chocolate chip style ice cream. Dean Patrick T. Mather, thank you for coming on as an alum and as Dean of the Honors College here on Following the Gone. Really appreciate all of your insights. You heard how to connect with him if you are a scholar, an alum, or a prospective scholar, and I will let you play your way out for all this right. very special It's episode. been a pleasure uh, chatting with you, Sean, as always. Mm -hmm.
Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Scholar alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at scholaralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are...